Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Boy, I didn't see that coming. Have you ever said that? The art of the ambush is a very old military tactic, and it must have been invented by Satan because he certainly knows how to ambush us. He ambushed Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? And he's been doing the same ever since. He hits us with things we never saw coming. And so does the world, and so does our own flesh, these great enemies of the soul. Just when we think we're over a rough spot, or maybe just when we feel we're weary and worn out, here comes another difficulty. Just when we think we've kicked a bad habit, well, something happens and we fall right back into it. We didn't see it coming. Well, I want to talk about that in today's message, and I want to begin a series of Bible studies to introduce to you one of the world's greatest heroes and one of the Bible's greatest figures, Joshua, who is the first military general in the history of the nation of Israel. To set it up, I want to take you on a little tour of the Old Testament book of Exodus. I want to devote some time to Joshua because we are getting ready to release this long-awaited book. Uh, It's been long-awaited by me, the Jordan River Rules having to do with Joshua's leadership. And I don't really deal in that book with who Joshua was or where he came from. So I want to do that in a series of podcasts that will correlate with the release of this book. And we need to begin in the book of Exodus. So if you are where you can open your Bible with me, then turn to Exodus 1, and I just want to very briefly walk through these opening chapters. In Exodus chapter 1, the children of Israel who are down in Egypt multiply, and they are enslaved by Pharaoh and by the Egyptian government. In chapter 2, Moses is born and he grows up. But his attempt to flee the Israelites backfires, and he runs out of the country. He's about 40 years old. And then in Exodus 3 and 4, God appeared to Moses many years later at the burning bush and sent him back to deliver the people of Israel. In Exodus chapters 5 through 11, 
God sends a series of devastating plagues against Egypt as he judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians and forces them to release the Israelites. And then turn the page, we're in Exodus 12. That describes the actual Exodus itself, the glorious moment when Israel exits Egypt. And in chapter 13, they get to the Red Sea. And in chapter 14, the Lord splits open the ocean, as I describe in the book, The Red Sea Rules, and he lets the people pass through on dry ground. They sing a great song in chapter 15, a hymn of praise. And then in chapter 16, God provides food and water for them in the desert as they make their way to meet in a very official way with Jehovah Yahweh, their almighty God, at Mount Sinai. Well, now we come to Exodus 17. The first part of this chapter is when God provides water from the rock to satisfy his thirsty people in the desert. But it's the second part of the chapter that I'm interested in for this message because for the first time, now get this, for the first time in history, people who are called Israel are attacked. They faced military conflict. They were ambushed by a group known as the Amalekites or the Amalekites. So let's pick up the story here. If you have your Bible open, we're in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8, and look at this phrase, the Amalekites came and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, this is the passage that I want to study with you in Exodus chapter 17, but you'll have to bear with me because I want to pause and look at two different cross-references to give us some more background. So, with your fingers still there in Exodus 17, turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. This is the story of the Syrian prophet, the pseudo-prophet Balaam. And look at verse 20, Numbers 24 and verse 20. It says, Then Balaam saw Amalek, or the Amalekites, and he spoke this message. Amalek was the first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. So here Balaam said that the Amalekite people were first among the nations. But in what way were they first? They were not the first nation to exist on this planet, but they were the first nation to do what? There is some distinction, some way that causes them to be the first. Well, the answer, they were the first to attack Israel. Now, it's true the Egyptians, Egyptians had enslaved Israel and that Pharaoh had come after them, but the Egyptian army really never attacked Israel. They never got near the Israelites. God drowned them in the Red Sea. No, it was the Amalekites who had the distinction, the notoriety, of being the first nation in the history of the people of Israel to ambush them, to attack them, and to wage war against them. Now, think about that. No nation in the history of humanity has been more battered and beaten for more centuries and for more millennia than Israel. This story in Exodus 17 took place about 1,400 years before Christ. 
Israel was attacked in battle here for the first time, but not for the last time. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was under siege again and again. They faced warfare again and again. They were attacked again and again. And in New Testament times, Israel was occupied by Rome and finally destroyed by the Roman army. Throughout the centuries, the Jewish people have been attacked in waves of anti-Semitism that continues to this day. As soon as the nation of Israel came back into existence and was reborn in 1948, she was attacked by literally every nation surrounding her. In our own lifetimes, Israel has faced one war after another for her very existence. At this very moment, there are 150,000 missiles pointed at Israel from southern Lebanon by Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, which is threatening nuclear weapons to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. For over 3,000 years, Israel and the Jewish people have been attacked wherever they have been, whenever they have been there. And it all started with this ambush by the Amalekites. This is the story of the first war against Israel. Well, how did the Amalekites do it? How did this battle begin? Well, for that, let's turn to another passage. Just turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, there's a sense in which the book of Deuteronomy is the memoirs of Moses. He is at the end of his life now, and he is going back and writing down his recollections that he wants to leave the Israelites of the 40 years during which he led the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 25, Moses recalled this battle with the Amalekites. He recalled it very clearly. So look at the way he describes it. He gives us some details we don't have in the book of Exodus. Look at Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is going to give you to possess as your inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not wait. So according to this, the Amalekites staged an ambush on the rear flanks of Israel. As we would say today, they shot them in the back. They circled to the rearward sections of the uh, procession to those who were weakest and to those who were lagging behind, and they attacked them. They did this when Israel was weary and worn out. They were just barely liberated from slavery. They had had the life scared out of them at the Red Sea. They had trudged on thinking they were going to die of thirst and hunger. They were weary and worn out. And isn't that when the devil loves to attack us, when we are weary and worn out? Sometimes we've worked ourselves to the bone. Sometimes we've carried very heavy burdens. Sometimes we're lagging behind. I don't know about you, but I often feel that way. And that's when the Amalekites attack. That's when our enemies pounce. That's when the devil ambushes us. That's when the world throws us a curve. Or that's when our own flesh rises up to, um, to thwart us. 
So with all of that as context, let's go back to our primary paragraph, turn back to Exodus 17, and we've got a lot of background information now, so let's begin again with verse 8. It says, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Now, just who were these Amalekites? According to Genesis 36, the founder of the Amalekites was Amalek, who was born to his father was Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau, who was the son of Isaac, and who was the son of Abraham. So followed the family line. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. This is Esau. And Esau's son was uh, Eliphaz, or Eliphaz. And Eliphaz had relations with a woman named Timnah, T-I-M-N-A, who was not his wife. Timnah was a Horite, H-O-R-I-T-E. She came from an ancient tribe known as the Horites. Now, biblical scholar Michael Heiser postulates that the Horites had a bloodline that included the giants who were produced in Genesis 6 and again later after the flood when the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. This evil line of humanity was fierce and fiercely evil. They were supernaturally evil. So if Eliphaz inherited this bloodline from his mother, then the Amalekites would have been large, fierce, and deeply antagonistic to God's program and to God's people, and they would have attacked them with supernatural energy. Now, if so, this is no mere human ambush. There were powerful spiritual forces of evil attacking God's people at their weakest point and trying to keep them from getting to Mount Sinai, where God was on his throne waiting for them. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but let me make it as simple and as relevant as I can. It would appear that Satan wanted to destroy God's people from the outset and that this was his opening shot. There was spiritual warfare going on that was satanic in nature. And I really think the same is true for us. When you feel ambushed in life, when you are weary and worn out, when you are lagging behind, that's when the devil will try to hit you with supernatural force. When something comes at you from the blue, when you feel threatened or endangered, when life just ambushes you at the very moment you're having trouble keeping up, Then go back to this story in Exodus 17. And then recall what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And you might also remember the opening chapters of Job. That godly man was ambushed on every side and Satan was behind it. So I don't want to be too speculative, but I'm sure of this, that when we get to heaven and we learn the true history of the things that have happened to us during the course of our lives, the struggles that we have faced, I believe we will find that the devil and the spiritual forces of evil have had much more to do with it than we now realize. So let's get back to our primary passage. Let's go back to Exodus 17 we now come to a very positive thing. I'm happy to tell you that we're about to meet someone for the very first time because here in this passage, we have the biblical debut 
of that great Old Testament hero, Joshua. So verse 9 says, Joshua, uh, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and to fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So who was this Joshua? He appears here out of nowhere. He appears here rather abruptly. We have not met him before in Scripture. This was a man who was probably about 45 years old who had been born into slavery. His father's name was Nun, L-U-N. Now, the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible speculates that Joshua's background before he became a biblical hero was perhaps military-based. The entry on Joshua begins by telling us something interesting about Moses. I didn't really know this until I read it in the Zondervan Encyclopedia. According to the first-century Jewish historian Josephus, some people say Josephus, Josephus, Moses had been a military commander for Egypt before he was banished from that nation. Remember that Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh, and he had been educated in all of the wisdom and all of the skill of the Egyptians. At that time, Egypt was a military power, the most powerful nation on earth, and Moses would undoubtedly have had military training during the 40 years that he grew up in the household of Pharaoh. So Josephus, who lived in the first century and was a Jewish historian, claims that Moses, after his education and because of his high standing and his brilliance, became a military commander in the Egyptian army and actually led an Egyptian army against Ethiopia. Well, about the time that Moses was driven into exile, this baby Joshua was born. He was born into slavery. But gifted slaves in Egyptian society could also train with and fight in the military. The Egyptian military commanders were not against using slaves as soldiers. And those slaves who were among the best soldiers could rise in the ranks. So here is what the Zondervan Encyclopedia suggests. I'm quoting now. As Josephus imagines that Moses led an Egyptian army against the Ethiopians, it is likely that Joshua had served in Pharaoh's army before the Exodus. Foreigners were common in the army of Egypt. Moses considered Joshua sufficiently battle-tested to appoint him as the leader of the Israelite defense against the attack of the Amalekites at Rephidim. Since Joshua was apparently known to Moses, he may already have been in charge of organizing the undisciplined crowd of slaves who had escaped Egypt and forming them into orderly marching columns." Unquote. So what the Zondervan Encyclopedia is suggesting is that when Moses, who had military background at age 80, returned to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from slavery, he quickly learned about a gifted 40-something-year-old Israeli military man, a slave, but in the Egyptian military, who had achieved some rank or some distinguishing uh, reputation for his military prowess, and Moses would have tapped this young man to help organize the nation of slaves as they made their hasty retreat from Egypt. 
Now, all of that is speculation, but it fits nicely into the way Joshua is introduced here in the Bible. The first time we actually see him, his first appearance in the Bible is when Moses quickly put him in charge of figuring out a way to defend themselves against this evil tribe that had attacked their rear flanks and was threatening to destroy them all before they even got to Mount Sinai. So, Again, with all of that as background, let's go back to our passage. In Exodus 17, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. Now, it would seem that Moses wasn't telling Joshua to choose some men out of Israel, out of the Israeli army to fight this desert tribe. The Israelites had no army. They had not yet formed an army. They were just a bunch of ex-slaves who were limping through the desert, complaining and eating manna and drinking water that flowed from a rock. What Moses told Joshua was, Joshua, we've just been attacked. The news has come up through the ranks. We've been attacked in our rear flanks. You have until tomorrow morning to find some men and create an army. We've got to defend ourselves, put together the best excuse for an army that you can, and you've got to do it overnight. And the passage says in verse 10, So Joshua did what Moses had commanded, and he fought the army of the Amalekites. Joshua is the first and the original general in the history of the Israeli army, and this was the first battle. So the passage goes on to say, Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hands, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up, so Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. So they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. Now, when I've heard this preached upon, this is almost always seen as an illustration of intercessory prayer. But there is nothing explicitly here about praying at all. We can assume that Moses and his brother Aaron and their friend Hur were praying. I suppose Joshua and the soldiers were praying even as they were fighting. But it isn't mentioned here. Something more is going on in this passage. Now, the Amalekites clearly had the advantage because whenever Moses' arms wavered, they started winning. They were the natural um, uh, people who you would have expected to have won. They were almost guaranteed victory, these fierce desert warriors who literally stood between Israel and Mount Sinai were, they had a lot of experience in fighting. The new American commentary on Joshua suggested that they had military vehicles known as camels, which could run at 45 miles an hour faster than a horse, and they had weapons and they had experience. Israel's army, such as it was, had been in existence less than 24 hours. But things were not as they seemed. I want you to notice a very interesting phrase. Let's keep reading at verse 14. It says, After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of 
Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar there, and he named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, now here's the phrase, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. They have raised their fist against Yahweh's throne. So now Yahweh will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. They have raised their fist. Now, the great question in my mind is, who is referred to as they? Who had raised their fist against the throne of Yahweh? How had they raised their fist against Yahweh's throne? Well, obviously, this was the Amalekites, but who was behind it? Who was energizing them? Is it any coincidence they stood between Israel and Mount Sinai? Were these superhuman warriors empowered by supernatural agents? And were these agents rebelling against the throne of Yahweh? Were they raising their fist against the throne of God? And the answer is, I believe so. It is not explicitly stated, but the wording is curious. These Amalekites were not raising their fists against the tribes of Israel, They weren't really fighting Israel. They may have thought they were fighting Israel. But someone was raising their fist against the heavenly throne of Almighty Jehovah Yahweh God. So it's very possible that there were real forces of spiritual evil, demonic forces, satanic forces, trying to keep Israel from approaching the holy ground of Mount Sinai and meeting with Yahweh. And there's one other clue. Just a little bit later, when the Israelites did make it to Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders of Israel ascended the mountain. And what did they see? They looked up and they saw a vast platform in the sky, a sea of glass. It was a sky blue as a jewel. And on it, they saw God. This was the throne which had been mentioned in chapter number 17. In chapter 17, someone was raising their fist against the throne of Yahweh. They were standing between the Israelites and the throne of God at Mount Sinai, raising their fist against the throne of Yahweh. And Israel prevailed because of the power of the rod conveyed by Moses and God and the very throne on which he resides at Mount Sinai had the rendezvous with Israel that came about because of the supernatural defeat through the rod of God in the hands of Moses held aloft over the Amalekites. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but let me just summarize it. In Exodus 17, the Amalekites ambushed Israel And they raised their fist against the throne of God, but Moses prevailed using the rod of God, which was a symbol of the power of God, and Israel was able to press on to meet that very throne at Mount Sinai. So you see there's a lot more going on here than than just a nice diagram for a missionary prayer letter. This is spiritual warfare, and the staff that we've seen before in the book of Exodus. Moses' staff represented the power of Almighty God who was on his throne. 
This was spiritual warfare, and the forces of darkness were trying to thwart God's plan and to defeat his people. They were raising their fists, it says, against the throne of heaven. And as long as Moses held that rod of God aloft, the throne that represented the power that emanated from that throne gave victory to the people of God, and the Israelites prevailed. So all of this seems relatively clear to me from the various scriptures that I've referenced. Uh, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but it seems to all fit with everything we know really against the broader warp and wolf of scripture. Now, what I'm going to say now is application. I am the last person in the world who would want to take liberties with a text like this and create an analogy when it isn't justified by the scripture. So I'm not saying that the application that I'm going to give you was actually intended or is explicitly given by the biblical authors, but this is an image that's on my mind and I just can't shake it off. So you can listen to me and then see what you think. But just as Moses stood above that battle, holding a piece of timber over the warfare taking place, so we have one who is greater than Moses, who is above us. He is watching us. He sees the battle taking place, and his power is conveyed and another piece of wood, and another piece of timber, and it's the cross. And while we are engaged in spiritual warfare on this earth, Jesus Christ is watching from above, holding out over our heads, as it were, the power of the cross and the victory of Calvary. Now, the Bible doesn't directly make that connection, so I want to be careful. You can push back on it if you want to. I'm not making an interpretation, but I'm just telling you what the application of this is to my own heart. This is an application I can visualize. And let's make, let's, there's one other thing I'll bring into it. The altar that Moses built that day in Exodus 14, I didn't tarry there in the text, but he built an altar to commemorate the victory. He called that altar Yahweh Nissi or Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. It apparently was a pole that stood up in the ground representing that rod, and that represented the victory. It was an emblem of victory. The Lord is my banner. Doesn't that remind you of our Christian banner? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So let me summarize it all in this. We have I've covered a lot of ground and brought in a lot of scriptures and woven together a lot of clues, but let me summarize it. As the children of Israel were leaving the Red Sea and traveling through the desert to Mount Sinai to meet with Almighty God, they were ambushed. It was their first 
military conflict, the first in the long history of Israel. This is where it started. They were ambushed when they were weary and worn, and the attack came at their weakest point in their rear flanks. They were attacked by the Amalekites, who may have had supernatural evil flowing in their bloodstream. Joseph, uh, Joshua pulled together an army. He was badly outmatched. It was a ragtag, put-together-quickly army. But Moses took the rod to the top of the mountain, and with the help of his friends, he held it high. All the Israelite warriors could look up, and they could see Moses silhouetted against the sky, holding aloft the rod of God. I can imagine they, every moment they could sneak to peek up and saw that banner of the rod of God over their heads being held high, and the forces of evil raising their fist against the throne of Almighty God had no answer for that power, and they were defeated, which allowed Israel to proceed on to Mount Sinai to worship literally under the actual presence of the Almighty throne, which descended to Mount Sinai on this azure blue sea of glass. So what does it mean in practical terms? I would say whenever you're ambushed in life, you can look around. You can say, well, there's a battle going on down here, but you can look up and you can say, Jesus, there you are. You won every victory when you died on the cross and rose from the grave. You gave your all for me and you are my victory. No enemy can withstand you. I am more than a conqueror. No threat can imperil you. No problem can impede you. No foe can deter you. These battle, battles may be tough, and maybe I'm not seeing everything that is occurring here, but thanks be to God, he gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just imagine if you feel unindated, worn, weary, and worn out and, and engulfed in battle, um, if you're ambushed. Just imagine, I mean, imagine this visually, Jesus in heaven, your advocate, your intercessor, knowing and seeing the battles you're facing. And imagine him lifting his hand of blessing, suspending that power of the cross over your life and pouring into your circumstances the power that was accomplished on that banner of the ages the old rugged cross. And when something happens that makes you say, I didn't see that coming, just turn and gaze at the cross and look up, for you have an advocate for you on high, lifting up his hands of blessing. When I was growing up, we sang a hymn, a gospel song, that may have been inspired by this very story. It says, there's a royal banner given for display to the soldiers of the king, as an ensign fair we lift it up today while as ransomed ones we sing. Marching on, marching on, for Christ count everything but loss, and to crown him king will toil and sing beneath the banner of the cross. Well, that's the only way we can gain ground. So I hope that you will share this podcast with other people. Go back and listen to it a second time if you got lost in some of what I was saying. I think that this is such an important story for us to understand and to really to be able to convey to others and to apply to our own lives. And 
As we do so, we will continue to study the life of Joshua, the author, or at least the principal hero of the book of Joshua in the Bible, who has inspired me to write this book, The Jordan River Rules. Check that out at jordanriverrules.com. Check out my website, robertjmorgan.com, for all of our other resources. And may the Lord sanctify you through and through. May the Lord bless you richly. May he bless you until we meet again. 